I want to welcome you to Jubilee Church's online service this week. My name is Greg. I'm one of our elders here at the city location, and I have the opportunity to bring the message today in our sermon series, Seven Words That Can Change Your Life. Today's topic is the book of Job. What a massive and intimidating subject for today's message. But desperate times call for desperate measures. I mean, we are in serious times these days. And today I want to address a serious topic. God is not surprised by COVID-19. And in his grace, he has already provided to us, his church, spiritual resources to not only endure through these times of trial, but actually for Christians to excel in this time. You know, before COVID, before 9-11, before even the great wars of the 20th century, or even the fall of the Roman Empire, God had preserved and recorded for his church this book. And in it are spiritual riches that can help us all as we face trials and suffering. So I want to consider today what the book of Job has for us. You know, the book of Job is exactly what we need today. Strong medicine for our day. You know, the experience of suffering is a shared reality for all people. And the book of Job does not shy away from it, but addresses it head on. This book doesn't dance around pain or suffering, which is why the book is so relatable. To some, the book of Job actually creates more questions than it answers. And frankly, I agree with that. But the purpose of the book is not to answer all our questions. In fact, I believe it's more important to consider the questions that we're asking rather than the answers that we're receiving. We're currently in this series called Seven Words That Can Change Your Life. And our word for today is the ever-present question, why? I hate my life. And I don't want to go on living. Oh, leave me alone for my few remaining days. What are people that you should make so much of us, that you should think of us so often? For you examine us every morning and test us every moment. Why won't you leave me alone, at least long enough for me to swallow? If I have sinned, what have I done to you? Oh, watcher of all humanity, why make me your target? Am I a burden to you? Why? This word often feels like the question in times of suffering. I find that when I'm suffering, whether it's physically or emotionally, I'm just stuck on this word. I I can't get past it. Why is this happening to me? Sometimes even, God, why are you doing this to me? Or why haven't you saved me from this pain? Typically, I think if only I could figure out the why. If only I could answer this question. If only I could understand in the bigger scheme why I'm suffering, I would be able to endure it. Often, the emotional turmoil of not knowing why or not understanding is is even more intense than the suffering itself. And the apparent futility reminds us that not only is our suffering questionable, but maybe our whole lives are futile. The economic crash just destroyed the small business I've spent so many years building. I was going to retire next year, but now all my savings are gone. Am I or my spouse or my parents going to die from COVID? What does it all mean? No wonder we ask, what is the point of it all? These are real questions that many are facing right now. Job faced them too. Some of you may be familiar with his story. Job is described as blameless, a righteous man who loves God and shuns evil. He was favored by God. He was also rich, filthy rich, in fact. He had everything, everything I always wanted, 
Everything you always wanted. In fact, he had enough for everything that all of us always wanted. He had a wife, kids, homes, favor in his community, oxen, sheep, and camels. Okay, well, I've never actually wanted camels. But in Job's day, a camel was the modern day equivalent of a Range Rover. And I've definitely wanted a Range Rover. On top of that, Job enjoyed God's favor. Now this is where things get messy. The text tells us that Satan, the accuser, comes to God. And when God gets to bragging about how great Job is, this is what Satan has to say. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan says, Job don't love you, God. He just loves the things that you give him. Yeah, Job, he a gold digger way over town who digs on thee. Hey, no doubt. There are many people today who are more interested in what God can give them than what, than who God is. The truest test of our allegiance is actually what we do when all this stuff goes away. Do we love God? Do we worship him? Or do we wander? So God lets Satan take Job's stuff. This is not a rags to riches story, but a riches to rags. We're told that in a single day, Job goes from being the wealthiest man in the land to the poorest. Not only are his sheep and his oxen and his Range Rovers taken, but his servants and his children. And just when we think that Job has passed the test of integrity, Satan attacks his health. Left with literally nothing but some broken shards of pottery and a terrible rash, Job's emotional life is about to spiral out of control. Now, Job asks a lot of questions, but if we pay attention to the questions that he asks and the progression of those questions, Job will lead us to an oasis of spiritual life in the midst of our spiritual wastelands. There are three major questions that Job asks in this book. Why, who, and where? So first, why? Beginning with chapter 3 and continuing on until chapter 37, Job and his friends are relentlessly debating the nature of God, of justice, of punishment. This is what the text says. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Truly, Job worships an awesome God. I admire Job for his high view of God, God's power and God's sovereignty. It would do us all well to remember that God is wise in heart and mighty in strength and that nothing is too hard for him. But if we see verse 16, Job has decided that God is distant. Maybe like you, or like Job, you are tempted to believe that in times of trouble, God is distant, a disengaged clockmaker. He wound up the world and let it run on its own and he's moved on to some other kind of cosmic pursuits. Maybe that philosophy is your comfort in times of trouble. Your answer to the question, why? Why? 
Why is God allowing COVID-19? He must not care about us. Job's dialogue with his friends is instructive, not only for what's in it, but what's not in it. I was surprised to find that in the book of Job, these three phrases do not appear. Job prayed to God. Job inquired of the Lord or Job sought the Almighty. That's right. While it is true that Job thinks a great deal about God, it's questionable whether he ever prays to God. Maybe you're thinking, but, but Greg, I, I thought that prayer was simply talking to God. So if Job directs his comments to God, isn't he praying? I would say to that, yes and no. I mean, that definition of prayer is adequate for my five-year-old. But in what relationship is it ever okay to do all of the talking? Job's dialogue or Job's speech throughout the book is totally one-sided. Listen, prayer is not God's suggestion box where he tries to improve his customer service based on our suggestions or our complaints. Prayer is a conversation, the place where we confess our dependency on God and we ask for his help. And then we listen for his reply. And that, frankly, Job does not do. He's never really looking for God's response. Job is thinking about God, maybe even talking to God, but he's not actually relating to God. He's not conversing with God. Let me tell you, when you suffer, and suffer you will. When you suffer, your philosophies will not save you. The power of positivity will not buoy you up and carry you along. Your theology can only take you so far. Who is God? And several times throughout the book, Job considers appealing to God. Each time, however, he talks himself out of it. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser, but if I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe he was listening to my voice. You see, Job continues with this thought later in chapter 9. He says, God is not a mortal like me, so I cannot argue with him or take him to trial. If only there was a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. The mediator could make God stop beating me and, and I would no longer live in terror of his punishment. Then I could speak to him without fear, but I cannot do that in my own strength. Job is afraid. Job doesn't just fear God with a holy reverence, but with dread. Job fears what would happen to him if he were to come into the presence of God. Job correctly recognizes that God is not to be taken lightly. God is holy and righteous, set apart. To Job, God is here, and Job is here, and there is a great expanse between them. You don't just barge into God's space. You know, there was a time when if you came into the throne room of a king without being summoned, that he could have you beheaded. That if you displeased him, he could have you executed. And so Job is right to be cautious about approaching God. Let's look again at verse 33. If only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. You know, Job longs for someone who has the wisdom, the authority, and the, the influence to represent him before the king. You know, a friend who could sway the king's heart. In God's court of law, Job knows that he cannot represent himself. I mean, you know what they say about the person who represents themselves in court, that they have a fool for a client. Job feels this dread 
of appearing before the judge without proper representation. Or maybe you've never been to court, but you probably remember back to junior high school. You know, there was that girl you liked, that guy you liked. I remember it well. She played the tenor saxophone. She sat right in front of me in the band. I spent an hour writing the note. And even though I meticulously folded that origami and it hid and concealed my best lines, I didn't have the confidence to bring it to her myself. I had to get her friend, Anna, to deliver it because I was afraid of in-person rejection. Job believes that God is good, morally good, but he doesn't know if God is experientially good. What will happen to me if I approach God? What will happen when I experience him? Will he crush me? This too is a common experience in times of suffering. One way to make sense of our confusion and our pain is to conclude that God must be powerful, but he's not loving. I mean, if God is all powerful and all loving, then he would be not only willing, but able to protect me from suffering. But he must be one and not the other. For Job, why becomes who? Who are you, God? A loving God or a tyrant God? Third, where is God? By chapter 23, we find Job no longer asking why or even who, but his why has become who and his who has become where. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. This brings me to my main point. When we suffer, are we asking the questions that really matter? I mean, we started with why, but the questions that our souls are longing to answer are who and where. Who are you, God? Where are you, God? Are you loving And are you near? After 37 chapters of back and forth, Job has settled in his mind that he will bring his complaint to God. But where can he find this God? Where can Job go to get mercy? But then God comes to Job. God has waited patiently. And now it's God's turn to speak. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? How's that for an entrance? God comes in riding on a tornado and then he microphone drops question after unanswerable question just in case Job doesn't know who's really in charge. Now, for those who are suffering, this feels very heavy-handed. God's brashness feels like a trump card, you know, like a way to just gloss over Job's pain. It would be easy for all the pain and anguish that we experience when we're suffering to feel bulldozed by God, by theological statements about how 
high and mighty, how sovereign and powerful God is. As I mentioned previously, theological statements can't bind up a wounded soul. Clever philosophies, they can't lift the fog of confusion. But quite the contrary, God's visit does affect Job. But not the way we would expect. Does Job complain? Okay, God, but you didn't answer any of my questions. Does he, does he say, hey, you big cosmic bully, what are you doing to me? No. Interestingly, Job says this instead. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. So why is Job speechless? He was originally looking for information, but God gave him a revelation. He was originally expecting judgment, but God gave him mercy. He was looking for answers, but God gave him relationship. God doesn't owe Job any explanation. God doesn't owe Job anything, really. But God delighted to show Job a glimpse of God's own glory. Job didn't find any of the things he was looking for. But I believe that God's appearance left Job satisfied. God answered not the why, but the who and the where. In this moment, God reveals himself to be the God of sovereign power, yes, but also the God of love and compassion, the God who cares and the God who is near. Job discovers God to be more compassionate than he expected, more personal than he anticipated, more satisfying than he ever could have imagined. I believe the reason that Job doesn't keep asking more questions is because the turmoil inside his heart has been settled. Settled by a God encounter. He didn't know it before, but now he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. To be caught up in a transcendent and transformative experience of God's nearness, God's personal love and care, That's what Job was really longing for. That's what all of us are longing for. To encounter the creator in a personal and experiential way. That is what can satisfy our souls. All the blessings and hardships of this life are meant to point us and point our souls to the truest satisfaction, which is God himself. C.S. Lewis wisely notes this. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousnesses and shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Job's life testifies to this reality. When he had everything before his suffering, he had heard about God. He knew about God, but his suffering finally drove him to seek out God for himself. Jeremiah says this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And Job testifies, I had only heard of you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. So what can we learn from the book of Job? 
While the book of Job doesn't answer the why, our faith acknowledges that we live in a fallen world, a world where the good and the bad, the sinner and the saint both benefit from blessings and uh, curses alike. But for the Christian, our suffering is not just random. It is redemptive. Uh, The scripture tells us that, that we know that trials contribute to our growth and maturity. Multiple biblical authors encourage their readers with statements like this, that the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold, which perishes when refined in the fire. That is, to have a faith that passes the test of earthly trials is a magnificent blessing in this life. One that gives us a deeper fellowship with Jesus because he also suffered. God uses Job's trial to bring himself glory by proving that Satan is powerless to destroy the faith of those chosen by God. Simultaneously, God builds Job's faith and strengthens it in the fire like clay becoming porcelain. Did you know that water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit? Wood burns at 700 degrees. Steel melts at 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. But clay does not cure to porcelain until 2,650. Think about the clay, which is conformed to the external pressures that are placed on it. And it takes a fiery trial to turn that clay into something resilient, something beautiful in the work of art. It could be that going through the fiery trial is just what God needs to turn you into a magnificent work of art. Now, just in case you're thinking, who is this kid? This talking about suffering. I bet he knows, doesn't know the first thing about what I've been going through. Well, I want to end with the wisdom of those who have suffered, who have gone before, who have experienced all that this life has to throw at them. I interviewed multiple leaders in our church, people who have endured many trials, unemployment, personal illness, a life-threatening sickness in their children, marital infidelity, even the loss of a child. They shared their experiences with me, but the one thing that they all shared in common was this, expressing that a personal experience of God, specifically the combination of of God's greatness and his compassion melded together, that this experience of God, this revelation of God was invaluable to them in the midst of their suffering. In fact, our own Brenda McCutcheon, she shared a prophetic encounter that she had revolving around this section in Job, when God reveals himself in the whirlwind. Like me, Brenda admits that before her own personal dark night of the soul, a time when her own daughter was ill and, and, and inches from death, that, that this appearance of God coming to Job with these words that to her, it just seemed mean. Yet in the midst of her storm, like Job, God met with Brenda, blessing her not with answers to her questions, but with a deeper knowledge of him, leaving her with a peace that surpasses understanding. This text right here, when God comes to Job, this served as a reminder to her both of God's power and of his nearness.
his accessibility, his willingness to humble himself and come to be with her. Brenda was overcome with awe at God's majesty. This revelation quieted her doubts and settled her turmoil. In her own words, she says this, when God began to speak to Job about who he was, it was like coming home to a place where God was gathering me into his big arms and I wasn't alone. And she's not the only one. A good friend of mine in college named Josiah, he went through a severe time of doubting in his faith. It took a tragic motor vehicle accident, a coma, and a miraculous recovery for him to experience God's nearness. You know, he told me after his recovery that he continued to have questions until the day that he realized that answers to his questions weren't going to satisfy him, but only the presence of God could do that. Like others I've interviewed, Brenda and Josiah, they testified to the comfort of God's Holy Spirit, reassuring them that they are children of God, chosen and beloved, and that this is more valuable to them than any answer to any question about why. Ultimately, God is more interested in a personal encounter with us than he is with our well-crafted theology or with our impassioned interrogations. Job was afraid to approach God because he had no advocate. But the book of Hebrews introduces us to God's court-appointed mediator, Jesus. The text says that Jesus, through his sacrificial death, he appeased God's wrath, satisfied God's anger over sin. And in his resurrection, he passed through the heavens into God's throne room where he intercedes for us, that friend who can sway the king's heart. That he alone has bridged the gap between sinful man and God. Job believed that in God's presence he would be crushed, but the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ was crushed on our behalf so that we would be embraced, that he was forsaken so that we could have a relationship, that he was rejected so that we could never be forsaken, and that God would be a loving father. The book of Hebrews says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near in true heart and full assurance of faith. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can have access to this God who is both powerful and loving. I want to conclude by inviting anyone who is suffering today to experience the embrace of this Father. No matter what your struggle, whether you feel spiritually distant from God, you have a financial insecurity in your life, a personal illness, you've lost a loved one, or you're afraid that you might suffer yourself. All of our pains are an opportunity to turn to God and to be embraced by him. But the only way to access God without fear of punishment is through faith in Jesus Christ's sacrifice. If you haven't received it, would you receive it today? Or maybe you have trusted in Jesus, but you know you need to turn back to God again in this time and trust in him to not just answer the why, but to reveal the who and the where. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we have heard of you with our ears today, but we are not satisfied. We want to see you with our eyes. Would you graciously reveal yourself to us again? Show us who you truly are. We know that your word describes you as clothed in majesty, arraigned in power and adorned with justice, yet filled with compassion. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, reveal to us your reality? 
Would you rescue us and bring us home? We choose to trust that Jesus' sacrifice has secured this as an experiential reality, that we can have it and we can know it, and that it's available to everyone who repents. We want that today. Thank you that your door is always open because Jesus Christ has passed through the heavens to make the way for us. Amen. Amen.